Amen. Hey, welcome church. Good morning. Grab your Bibles if you got them. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Um, as we continue in our study of the book of Exodus, we're moving into uh, kind of the third part of Exodus, which leads us to a, a new series, and we're calling it Worship Matters. And the reason is because we're going to talk about matters of worship, but also because worship really matters. And and there's, there's a couple of ground rules that, that you just got to know that we all worship something and that we were, we were created to worship. And it really matters. What we worship and who we worship and how we worship really matters because what we worship shapes us and what we worship reveals what's most important to us. And all of us, whether you believe in God or not, we worship something. We ascribe worth to stuff. And... Um, I saw this very clearly yesterday, not, not in a negative, like, idolatry kind of way at all, but just all of us worship things. Like, if you've got a favorite sports team, you worship them, meaning when they do good, you go, yay, team. So my team, when my team does good, we literally sing glory, glory to old Georgia, all right? And it is a religious experience, all right? So I, it, it's okay. Well, yesterday, we, I, was, I had the opportunity to play at the, uh, the Tim Tebow Celebrity Golf Tournament, all right? And, and what you saw there, it, first of all, it was a little nerve-wracking because normally when I play golf, I'm used to uh, like three people watching me, not like hundreds. And so these hundreds of people gather around at, at, at Sawgrass and we walk up on 17 and there's a gallery. And I don't know, like I'm not good. And it's worse when other people are watching you not be good. It's okay to kind of be crappy alone, but to be crappy in front of hundreds of people is worse, Right. But what would happen every time in our little golf cart, each of us had a celebrity to play with. And so I was, we were playing with the head football coach at, at Arkansas. What a, a great guy. I hope the Bulldogs beat him to death, but uh, he's a great guy. He's great. But, but we would we'd be driving our little golf cart, and, and it was me and Lars Peterson in my golf cart. And you would turn every corner, and there were these crowds of people with their books to, have, to, to get autographed. And they were at the celebrity golf tournament. So they're looking for Tim Tebow and... Cam Newton and Evander Holyfield. I mean, people like that are there. And then you would turn the corner and they would look into your call cart and they'd be like, oh, it's nobody. Over and over and over again. It was great. It was really, really great. And so, so every single one of us ascribe worth to something and it matters. It really, really matters. And so what we're going to see here in, in Exodus chapter 25, today we're going to talk about the tabernacle. And you might think, as a Christian, you know, what, what does the tabernacle mean to me? And it's very, very important because what we're going to see in the tabernacle is we are going to see the very intention of God. And you'll remember, this is right on the heels of our Ten Commandments series. So God has just laid out the Ten Commandments, which in essence crush us. That the perfect law giver gives us this perfect law and we find out very quickly that we're all lawbreakers. And right on the heels of being crushed, By these Ten Commandments, we get to chapter 25, and here's what God says. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. So this is the first ever capital campaign in the Bible right here, all right? So God says, Moses, we're going to take up a collection. And from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, because they're going to build a tabernacle. And let me just time out right here. There's not... We're not doing a capital campaign right now, so we're not going to take up a special contribution at the end of this service, but I just need to tell you this, um, that, that you as a church have been incredibly generous and faithful to the fact that God is first, that God loved you first, that God went first and sent his best to demonstrate his love for us, and that in response to that, and again, worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done, 
And around here at the Church of 1122, you have been responding financially as if God is first. And, and what I mean is in, the, in your tithes and offerings, you know, at the end of every service, we say you can respond to God by bringing your tithes and offerings to Him. And I just need to tell you, way to go. And a big part of why God continues to bless us and we're continuing to expand and move and make more room for more people and all of those kinds of things have to do with your faithfulness to the responding to the fact that God is first. And when we respond, whether we respond in song or prayer or financially, whatever, it is worship. And so 1122, way to go. Verse 3. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. Notice the wide ranges of things that people brought unto God. You know what that means? It, this is good, that, that, that it was a movement for all people. That whether you were like loaded, knocking it down, and you were like, I can make a contribution of gold, or if you were kind of from the, from the, you know, the tribe of Dylan, my people would be like, uh, we don't have gold, but we got goat hair. You know, we can bring you some goat hair. Because that's what it would be. Like, hey, I, I got a raccoon hat and a deer pelt. And God's like, it doesn't really matter what the gift is, but it's when God moves in your heart and you're bringing this in worship and for worship. So they're bringing all kind of different things to God. Verse 8. And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Don't run by that too fast. That I may dwell in their midst. You see, what the tabernacle shows us is God's intention that the almighty, sovereign king of the universe, the perfect lawgiver that has laid out the Ten Commandments, that has told us, be perfect because I am perfect. And as soon as we begin to think, man, God's really into a lot of rules. Not only are there Ten Commandments, there are like 600 other laws on how to be clean before him. But, he, but what he really wants us to know is, hey, hey, no, I'm not about the rules. What I'm fundamentally about is a relationship with my people. And so what I want more than anything else to be glorified in is to dwell with, to fellowship with, to be intimate with my people. And what we're going to see here by the description of the tabernacle is that God intersects his dwelling and worship together. That those two things go hand in hand. And what God fundamentally wants is to dwell with his people. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And of all its furniture, so you shall make it. To which, if you're Moses, you might raise your hand and say, um, God, but there's just one problem. Because you are almighty and you are perfect and you are holy. And, and we are all wretched, black-hearted sinners. I mean, we are all lawbreakers. So how in the world are we going to be able to dwell with you? For two reasons. Because you're perfect and holy and just, you won't put up with our sinfulness. And if we were to step into your pure presence, it would kill us in just one second because the wages of sin are death and we're all sinners, so what do we do? And so not only does God desire to dwell with his people, but we're going to see the way he sets up the tabernacle is the way to make it available for us to be able to dwell with this almighty and perfect God. So go to chapter 26 and you get the description of the tabernacle. It says this. It says, then you shall erect... The tabernacle. And again, this is the place of worship, and it's also the place where we dwell with God. We fellowship with God. It says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And here's the description in verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. 
And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold and with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony with the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside of the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite of the wall. And you shall put the table on the north side. And you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. And their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five. You shall cast five bases of bronze for them. And so you might be looking at that and be like, this, you know, God was really into Pinterest. Why is he, I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, it sounds, like, sounds to me like Rick James made it. You know what I'm saying? It's like gold and purple and blue and it's kind of crazy, but whatever. But essentially what God is saying is he set up this model of worship that demonstrates God's heart for his people. And so I know when you read through that, it's hard to picture what it might look like. So I found a, a picture online of, of a, an illustrated version of the tabernacle. So there it is. Smaller than a football field, it's about the quarter of the size of a football field. And there's like an outer court, and inside the outer court is that little tent with the colors, and that is the tabernacle. And then, um, you know, anytime there's stuff like this in the Bible, there's some really committed Christians that feel like we need one in real life. So there were some people somewhere that made it, that actually erected one, and, and so there it is. And you know it's to, and, and you know it's verse by verse in the Bible because there's the power hookup for your RV. So you can, uh, <laughs> if you want a vacation at the tabernacle, then God bless your ministry. So... So if you, were, if you were a ceremonially clean Jewish man during this time and you were going to the tabernacle to worship, then <clears throat> once you walked into that outer court, kind of that outside tent, there was this big thing there called the altar of sacrifice. And on the altar of sacrifice, you would sacrifice either you know, some kind of animal or a bull or a dove, kind of depending on your economic situation. But it was, it was so that you would know that this is going to cost you something to go before the Lord. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's all different kind of sacrifices. There's grain offerings and Thanksgiving offerings and burnt offerings and all sort of stuff. And one of the things that you see in tabernacle worship very early on is it was not a spectator sport. There was no back row to show up late to the tabernacle and just see what happens. But when you went to worship God in this system, you left literally with blood on your hands. And so... That was, that was the altar of sacrifice, and then when you'd walk past that, also in the outer court, there was this deal called the basin for washing. I don't know if you've seen the Jesus movies, right? There's a whole lot of beach and no ocean, so everybody had dirt on them all the time. And so you had to go and ceremonially wash your hands so that you would be clean and consecrated before you went into the tabernacle. And those two things were found in the outer court, and, and so if you were female, that's as far as you were allowed to go. And then for the, for the religiously Jewish men that were ceremonially clean, you could pass from the outer court into the inner court, and once you got into the inner court or into um, the holy place or the tabernacle, right there on your right was this table for bread, and it was the, the table of bread of presents, and there were 12 unloaven loaves of bread, and, and or 11 loaves of bread, and that was to remind everybody that they had just, um, they had just crossed out over the Red Sea and come out of Egypt, and if you remember back when we were talking about that, that, that God was going to send the angel of death over and, and on, on that night, they celebrated Passover, and they had to be in a hurry. They had to sleep with their tennis shoes on, because as soon as the angel of death passed through, they were getting out of town, because the Pharaoh was going to be chasing them. And so that's what that table was to remind them of. And then on the other side of the room uh, was the golden lampstand, or you may know this as a menorah. And it was kind of built to look, <clears throat> to kind of look like a tree. And it was to remind the people of the tree of life that was in, in the garden. And not only that, 
um, you know, the priest kind of had to work by light, so there's got to be some light in there somewhere. And so this provided light, but that light represented the very presence of God. And then on the other side of the room was this thing called the altar of incense. And it was to, it was to represent the prayers of God's people floating up from earth to heaven as we pray to God. And then, on, and then there was this curtain. And this curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in the Holy of Holies was this special little room that represented where God's presence on this earth was. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. I've told you this before. It was, you know, remember Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was this box, and they put the Ten Commandments or the covenant of God and His people in that box. And on that box, the Ark of the Covenant, was this thing called the Mercy Seat. And these little, these little angels' wings made kind of a seat. And people thought that was the throne of God on the earth. And the problem is, is that because the perfect law giver gave us this perfect law and we are law breakers, nobody could come into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. And so one time a year, the high priests would gather all the nation of Israel together, all the people of God together, and they would all confess their sins publicly, out loud, to the priest, and the priest would transfer the sins of the people to the head of this goat. They called him the scapegoat. And he would take that sin-filled scapegoat to the edge of town and cast him out as far as the east is to the west and all the people would watch their sins walk out into the desert and die. And then the priest would take another goat or another lamb and he would take him into the Holy of Holies after he had consecrated himself. And he would spill the blood of that lamb and he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrificial lamb over, over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and the blood of that lamb would cover over our sins. And you get a season pass for one year. It only, happened, it only lasted for one year. And so every single year you had to repeat over and over and over. And essentially the reason for us as Christians, one of the reasons this is so important is because the tabernacle reveals God's heart for his people. That even though we are lawbreakers, even though we are sinners, and if you, and if you think it's, you're bad, it's actually worse than you think. And that God... Even in our sinfulness and selfishness, I mean, we, we studied it in the Ten Commandments, even though we're all adulterers and murderers and liars and thieves and all of those things, God the Father still wants to dwell with his people. And so he establishes this tabernacle to say, I want to dwell with you. And in order for me to dwell with you, your sins need to be taken care of. And I need you to see a picture of that. And so here's the point. That the tabernacle reveals to us, God's desire to dwell with his people. And that is a big deal. Because God does not just want your performance. In fact, he's not that interested in your performance. And every one of you that's a parent, you know what I'm talking about. As the father of a nine-year-old boy and a five-year-old little girl, I don't just want their performance. I mean, it wouldn't be enough for me if I had the perfect kids that always did everything we asked him to do. I can't even say it with a straight face, right? If JP made straight A's and he was the perfect athlete and Reagan was the queen of the, you know, of gymnastics, which he loves to do gymnastics, which isn't real gymnastics. It's just a bathing suit in a gym. cost me $100 a month, you know, just frolic around. But whatever, okay, she does it. But she's queen of the balance beam and, and they always obeyed. And every time I walked in the door and said, what'd you do today, daddy? And they were like, well, when we finished our Bible study, we did our homework before we cleaned our rooms, all right? Even if they acted that way all the time, and yet they did not want a relationship with me, it wouldn't be worth it, right? And so, like a good dad, God is a good dad. 
that wants to know his kids and he wants to be in a relationship with his kids. And so the tabernacle reveals to us God's desire to dwell with his people. But there's a problem. There's a theological existential problem that God is a perfect and almighty God and we are, we are imperfect, unholy people. Even on our best days, we are imperfect, unholy people. And those two things just don't go together. So what do we do? And so this tabernacle system is to set up to show us, to be kind of a shadow and a foreshadowing of how God and his people could dwell together. Because along comes Jesus, and in Jesus, he is the sum total fulfillment of that tabernacle desire of God for his people. That when Jesus comes along, once and for all, he accomplishes everything that this tabernacle in Exodus 25 and 26 was supposed to teach people about how God and his people dwell together. So you might want to grab your, your notes, or if you're you know, kind of good at Bible study, maybe you can hop around, and we'll go to a bunch of different New Testament verses. But if you go to Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, this is referred to as, um, as the mountain of transfiguration. So Jesus takes his three favorite disciples, and he takes them up on top of this mountain. And while he's up on this mountain, Jesus has this conversation with two dead guys, Moses and Elijah. And they've been dead and gone and in heaven for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years And in Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, here's what it says. It says, and behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And it doesn't say exactly what they're talking about at first, but I I imagine Jesus is like, hey, boys, haven't seen you in a while. And Moses and Elijah say, yeah, man, we haven't seen you either. It's been like 30 years or something since we've seen you. How's life down here on earth? And Jesus is like, oh, it's pretty cool, but I'll be back to you in a little while. And then the Holy Spirit's coming this way. And they're having this kind of little conversation. And then it goes on and says, verse 31, So he's talking to Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The interesting thing here is that word departure in English, in in Greek, literally is exodus. So get this, get this. Moses and Jesus are talking about exodus. And this is huge. And so Jesus is saying to Moses, yeah, Moses, what I'm about to do is sort of like what you did, except on a grander scale. The way you went on behalf of God to Pharaoh to save some people that were in bondage to Pharaoh. And then you, you by God's grace, those people were let go and taken into the promised land and to the presence of God. And now Jesus is saying, but I'm doing it on like more of an eternal scale. And I'm going to go on behalf of God the Father. I'm going to go and release people from bondage and set them free. And not to just a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but to an eternal an eternal connection into the very presence of God. Jesus says, I have come, Moses, to do eternally what you did. Go to John chapter 1, verse 14. Some of you have been around for a while. You know this verse already. You know in John 1, 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then when you get to 14, it says, and the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, literally in Greek, that word is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, in in the gospels to kick off Jesus's ministry, we find out that God has this desire to tabernacle or dwell or be in a relationship with his people. And Jesus comes to be the fulfillment of God's desire and the only pathway by which we are able to know him and dwell with him as heavenly father. And so, therefore, there's no need for the tabernacle system anymore or the temple system anymore. 
And when you walked into that outer court and there was the altar of sacrifice where they used to burn bulls, well, in Mark chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says this, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, Jesus is saying, now that Jesus has come and through his life and death and resurrection, it's not what you sacrifice on the, in, on the outside, but it's actually about you loving God and you loving one another. And that is the kind of worship that God is looking for. Not that you just come in and kill a bull every, every year. Or in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The Bible says now in Christ, it's not an outside-in thing, it's an inside-out thing. It's not so much what you do with your hands as much as it is what you do with your whole body, and it starts here on the inside, so we don't need an altar of sacrifice anymore because now you're the sacrifice. The way you respond to God is what worship is. And then you go on to that basin of water. One of the things Jesus got in trouble for a whole lot in the Gospels is he never washed his hands right, all right? So some of you, if, if your kids never wash their hands, they're kind of Christ-like, so you cut them a break. <clears throat> so there was this ceremonial washing. In, in, in the Old Testament, a lot of times it was an outside-in sort of thing. And in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 6 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He, this is Jesus, Jesus saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, it's not about an external cleansing, it's an internal cleansing. This is why religion doesn't work. This is why so many of you tapped out of church for about a decade. Because you grew up in the kind of church that I grew up in and somebody said, if you want to be a good Christian, and by the way, there is no such thing as a good Christian. There's not like good Christian and bad Christian. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses. There's just dead and alive. And that's good news if you're dead. You know why? Because there's no level of dead. A little bit dead and a lot dead is just dead. And God can take a little bit dead or stinky dead and bring you to life. I promise that's my testimony. And so I grew up in the kind of environment that said, if you want to be a good Christian, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do. Problem, those are my favorite girls, all right? And so you tried to white knuckle it forever, and all you tried to do was clean the outside, clean the outside, clean the outside. And you thought, if I can just get in the right environment long enough, maybe it'll get on me. And I've told you this a million times too, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian anymore and sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. It's not outside in, it's inside out. And so when Christ comes, it's not about washing anymore. It's why Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Say, look, you can have a million dollar casket. It could look awesome on the outside. But if there's nothing alive on the inside, then it's just dead. And so when Christ comes, there's no need for the ceremonial hand washing anymore. And then the good news is in the... Um, in the tabernacle system, there was an inner and outer courts. But then when Jesus comes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, There are neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, that there is no seating chart in the kingdom of God. And that's, a, that's why the church of 1122 is a movement for all people. 
all colors, people, all socioeconomic classes, all different kind of backgrounds, regardless of what you used to believe. It doesn't matter that in Christ, we are all one people. And that also means that in Christ, in Christ, nobody walks with a swagger or a limp. That you just walk with Christ. And so he breaks down the seating chart. And then when uh, there's the table for the bread of presence that was in the tabernacle. But Jesus in John chapter 6 verse 35 says, I am the bread of life. He who has come to me shall not hunger. And so you don't need the, the table of the presence of bread anymore because Jesus is the sum total fulfillment of that bread. That he is the bread of life. And by the way, you know where he says this? He says this right after he's fed 5,000 people. And those 5,000 people, if everybody brought a date and had a kid, you know, it's about 15,000 people. And he did it with just a little tiny bit of bread and a little tiny bit of fish. And he feeds all these people. And now all of these people start following Jesus for the wrong reason. Because you think our church is growing fast? I'm telling you, if, if we could show up here every weekend and I could feed this whole room with a pack, pack of Lance crackers, you'd bring a friend, wouldn't you? You'd be like, y'all, this is crazy, all right? I mean, you got to come. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes they sing loud. And he's kind of funny, but then he kind of gets mad at us. But regardless of that, regardless of what you believe, he gets one pack of crackers and passes it out. And at the end of the day, we got 12 baskets of crackers in the back. You got to come see this. This place will be packed out. The problem was when Jesus did this miracle is people came to get fed instead of to meet Jesus. And so in that, he says, hey, don't, don't miss the point here, folks. I am the bread of life. That you don't come to me just so I make life better. You come to me because I am better than life. That's what Jesus says. He's the sum total fulfillment of the fact that his grace is more than enough. And he is everything that we need. And so we don't need a lampstand anymore for light. Because in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. One of the great questions I get around here all the time is, I'm just trying to determine God's will for my life. How about instead of trying to determine God's will for your life, determine the kind of person God wants you to be. And the person God wants you to be is the kind of person that walks in the light of Jesus. That just means that you abide in him, you get to know him. Because people that can see, people that have light, they don't tend to stumble around as much and bump into things. And so Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And that altar of incense that represented the prayers of God's people floating up to heaven... Um, when, when the disciples come to Jesus to say, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? He says, all right, when you pray, pray like this. This is Matthew 6, 9. He says, our Father in heaven. To which the disciples, these Orthodox Jewish guys, are like, eh, come out, Rabbi, you got it wrong, okay? We don't pray our Father. We pray sovereign Lord, okay? Because he's king of the universe. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's kind of different now. In me, in me, yes, he is still king of the universe. And he's our dad. And we get to go to him like in this intimate relationship. So we're not, we don't have to burn incense anymore and float one up to God and hope he's there to catch it. But we, we get to knock on the king's chambers at 3 a.m. and ask for a cup of water. And only the king's child gets to do that. Do you understand that? I mean, this is a big deal. Especially if you grew up real liturgical and you prayed uh, the Lord's Prayer all the time. And you got so used to saying our Father, you don't realize what a big deal it is. Because you, can, you know who gets to wake me up in my house at 3 a.m. in the morning? I got two little munchkins. And if they come in and knock on my door or wake me up, which is always a little bit creepy, right? You ever sleep in your dream and you're like, I just feel like somebody's just watching me. And you open your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, little trolls, we're thirsty. <laughs> huh? Okay. 
So my kids do that, I get up and get them something to drink, or either pretend like I'm asleep and let their mama do it, but you know what I'm saying. You walk in my house at 3 a.m., we're doing your funeral. That's how that's going, all right? So that's, that's, what, that's what Jesus tells us about who God is and how we can pray to him. And then there's that room, the Holy of Holies, that represents the very presence of God, where once a year, the high priest would come in and sacrifice the lamb and pour the, pour the blood over the Ark of the Covenant to cover the sins of all mankind for one year. And in, and in John chapter 1, verse 29... John the Baptist is out baptizing people. Crazy guy, crazy hair, ate weird food, yelled at everybody, told them to repent or they're going to go to hell. And he said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm here to prepare ye the way of the Lord. And then one day in John 1, 29, John the Baptist, it says, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold. And that means, hey, everybody wake up and listen up. Quit looking at Facebook. Quit talking to your neighbor. Listen, what I'm about to say is a big deal. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not another Lamb of God that's here to, to, to cover the sins for one year for the religiously Jewish people. But the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, that's come to take away, not cover over. The sins, not the mistakes. We're not mistakers in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a Savior. The sins of, not just church people, not just religious people, not people that believe in God right now, but the sins of the entire world. And then Jesus Christ, for the next three years, goes does his earthly ministry to demonstrate that he is the sum total fulfillment of everything that was happening in the tabernacle. And then on the cross, he says these words, it is finished. And the law that was given by the perfect lawgiver, that was broken by lawbreakers like you and me, it was fulfilled in Jesus. And then, and then every single one of us that would surrender our lives to the lordship of Christ, he is not only does he, does he represent and show us the desire of God to be with his people, but he also is the path by which we get there. And when he says it is finished, and he dies on the cross, and he gives up his life, an earthquake cracks right down the middle of Jerusalem, and it hits the temple. And that veil that, that separated the holies of holies, the presence of God from regular people like me and you, it was torn from the very top to the very bottom. Christians like us, people that have surrendered to Jesus, people that, that, that bend their knee and say, Jesus is my Lord, that we have access, that we have access to the very presence of God. And here, here's what this means for you and me when, when it comes to worship. If you really knew, and I don't mean no just like on a cognitive level, because some of you Bible nerds are like, oh, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. You're trying to get all the verses down, all right? But if you really knew who Jesus is and what he has done for you, I mean, if you really knew it, like at the gut level, then you would have one response, and it would be to worship him. And I don't just mean the way you sing, although it would radically change the way you sing. It would change everything about you. It would change the way we respond to God and the way we live and the way we treat each other. It would change the way we respond with our finances, and it would absolutely change the way we respond in worship here in this church you see it, it would be like this can you imagine can you imagine if you went to a 14 year old girl if Moses went to a 14 year old girl in his time and he said hey listen I was talking to God today by the way do you know who I am and she's like yeah you're Moses I mean like your face glows and God talks to you through burning bushes and writes you notes on stone tablets you're kind of a big deal we've heard about you 
everywhere we go, they, every, every time you turn the corner in your golf cart, everybody looks in and it's like, it's Moses, and they run up to you, okay? So we get who you are, Moses. You are a big deal. And if Moses were to lean into this 14-year-old girl and say, hey, listen, I was talking to God today, and he, he told me to come and, and invite you by name, okay? I'm going to take you into, into the temple, into the tabernacle. We're going to go past the outer courts, and we're going to bypass the the altar, and we're going to bypass the hand-washing station, and we're going to go into the tabernacle, and she would be like, Moses, I'm a little girl. I don't get to go into the tabernacle. And he'd say, no, 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 I checked with God. He's cool with it, okay? And we're going to go by the table of bread and the altar of incense. We're going to go by the, the light, and then, now get this, you're, you're going to be, other than the high priest, you're going to be the only person that's ever done this, and we're going to go behind the veil, and God has invited you into the Holy of Holies, and don't be afraid, he ain't going to kill you, it's going to be awesome, okay? And you're going to be able to just kind of crawl up in the lap of the one sitting in the mercy seat. What do you think about that little girl? You know what she would do? She would lose her mind. She would go home and she would tell her mom, she would tell her dad, she would tell her brother, she would tell her sister, and she would not have a category in her mind that she gets to enter into the very holy of holy. She would freak out. And the reality is, post-resurrection, as Christians, that you and I get that invitation each and every time we even get, actually, you can do it in your own bedroom or wherever you want to. Tree stand works, all right, the beach for Ben, wherever it is. But definitely, every single time we come and gather in his name in this place, that's the kind of invitation we get. But you know what a lot of us do? We walk in here during the third song because we don't want to waste our time singing the first two. And we walk in here during the third song, and we go, man, I don't really like that song that much. Oh, they're doing a new one again? Ugh. As if some of you think we're singing to you, Right? Like a bunch of Simon Cowles sitting in here like, eh, God, why don't we sing a hymn? Huh? We do sometimes. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? And one of the things that, that I've been just kind of scratching my head uh, for a long time is when the Bible talks about worship and our response to God for who He is and what He's done, and we talk and experience worship it's not even the same things. As my dear friend, Pastor Britt, likes to say, no, this isn't apples and oranges. This is apples and Japanese butterflies, okay? They're not even in the same category. If you look at ways some of the folks in, in the Bible worship, like Psalm chapter 63, okay? This is David. It's like the soundtrack of the Bible. This is a man that understood worship. And we should understand it more because we got Jesus, and he didn't have him the way we know him, okay? And here's what he says in regards to worship in Psalm 63. This is David. He says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. The NIV translates that word yearns, my soul yearns for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. In verse 6, he says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you, in the watches of the night. Evangelicals don't have a category for this kind of description of God. We don't. We, we, we like to talk about God as sovereign and there's a reverence to him. But then lately, a lot of people want to talk about Jesus like your homeboy. He ain't your homeboy. You don't talk about your homeboy like this. You understand? And some of us take our, our worship and our response to God too casually. I got some homeboys sitting on the front row. I can promise you, we don't talk like that. Jeff Moore, a dear friend of mine, hunting buddy, compassion friend, Christian music artist is here, oh, and a good friend of mine. 
And I get to see him three or four times a year, usually when we're hunting, praise God. But this week was the playing that golf thing. And when I saw him, I do what all grown Christian men do when they meet each other or see each other again. And again, I dearly love the man. And we do the kind of the high-five hand grasp class. And then we bring it in here because we're going to hug, but we have two very well-flexed arms to prevent our chest from touching. That's what we're trying to do. And then you do the pat on the back, and then you quote Moses, let my people go. That's what the pat is, very hard, let my people go. And then you're out. And then we ask, how are you doing? How's your family? How are your kids? Those kinds of things. And it's, and it's like that. I can tell you what. If he were to come up to me and I go, hey, man, Jeff, how you doing? After we do that, let my people go. How you doing, man? He goes, you know what? As I lay on my bed at night, Joby, my soul yearns for you. <laughs> Guess who I ain't friends with anymore? God bless your ministry, man. Uh, we ain't hunting. All right. All right. But that's how the scriptures talk about your soul yearning for the very presence of God. And through Christ, we have direct access to the great high priest. You don't have to sacrifice a goat or wash your hands or anything. He died on the cross and invited you into that very presence. And the crazy thing is, it's not just, I mean, we could go verse after verse after verse in the scriptures about people yearning or longing for God. But all throughout church history, there are some men that really got it right. Like Augustine says this in about 325 A.D. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true and sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Though not to flesh and blood, you outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any of the secrets in our heart. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. You hear it? Do you hear kind of the angst? He says, he says, you know what, I have a delicious meal and thanks God for that, but you are sweeter than the delicious meal. I drink good wine and I praise you for it, but you are sweeter than the wine. Not you're sweeter than pain, but you are sweeter than even the best things in this world. Does your heart yearn for God like that? Can I tell you what happened in church history that led us down this path of just cognitively believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior? And maybe losing our yearning to worship in response. Is when, when Christianity in about 325 AD went from this, this minority on the run to the majority religion. And everybody wanted to make sure for right reasons that everybody's doctrine was right and pure and holy. And so the church fathers put things together like the Nicene Creed. Which is awesome and we quote it here often. And yet you can read the whole Nicene Creed and it doesn't say one thing in there about loving God. Doesn't say one thing about loving people either. See, that's that's different. That's different. Martin Luther says this. Martin Luther says, Oh, I wish to devote my mouth and heart to you. Do not forsake me, for if ever I should be on my own, I should easily wreck it all. Listen, he was a Lutheran. A Lutheran. And you know what he's saying here? He said, I want to devout, I want to devote my mouth. And heart to you. That's different than just believing the right things about God, isn't it? Because let me tell you if, you, if you don't know how to worship and pour yourself out for Him, I'm telling you, it's like Facebook stalking your wife. You can get all the correct information about her and never actually know her. 
And I'm just going to tell you, I don't want just the information about my wife. You understand? I want to devote my mouth to her. You take that wherever you want to. You understand? That's what it's like. And some of you just come in here and sit in church and, and, and that's just different. It makes me scratch my head and say, where are the people that want to devote their mouths and heart to God? Spurgeon says this, I thank thee that this, which is a necessity of my new life, is also its greatest delight. So, so I do at this hour feast on thee. You ever have your kids in that moment? For my daughter's five, the cutest human alive. That's a fact, or at least for me. And on Fridays, we usually do a little daddy-daughter date. She's huggy and snuggly and wants to sit in my lap. And every time I say yes, because I've heard when she's 15, she's not going to want to, all right? I don't know if I believe that yet, but I'm going to take every one I can get right now. And there are just some of those times she looks at me, and you've done this too as parents, right? And you grab me, you say this weird stuff, and you're like, I just want to eat your face. You ever say, like, it's like I can't hug you enough, I can't squeeze you tight enough, I just can't. That's... That's what Spurgeon, in a, you know, not an irreverent way, is saying about God. That I want to feast on thee. John Owen, my favorite Puritan, he says this. Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Herein would I die. Herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections. Until all things below become to me as dead and deformed thing. No way suitable for affectionate embracing. That's different than, ah, man. We're not going to play my favorite song. That's different. And here's my favorite one. And by favorite, I mean the most awkward thing about worship I've ever read in my whole life. Brother Lawrence, 16th century monk, wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence. He writes this. I have at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord that I am ashamed to mention them. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) I am of the camp that delicious should only be reserved for describing food. And that dude just laid delicious on the Lord. You know what I mean? That's different than singing a couple songs. And and Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart. I mean, that that means there is some emotive response to him and what he's done for us. And some of you are like, yeah, but I'm not into singing that much. You know what? Me either. Outside of the worship CDs that we crank out here, I got one CD, Johnny Cash. And until he writes another one, I ain't getting another one, all right? I'm not into music that much either. And if you're sitting back going, yeah, you know, I mean, you know what? I just kind of... I don't know, I just don't, I ain't feeling it. Well, guess what? If you ain't feeling it, you might not understand what Jesus Christ did for you. You really might not understand the gospel. Because when I examine the depths of the depravity of my life, when I understand that God didn't just try to make me better, but I was dead in my trespasses. When I think about the people I've hurt and how selfish I am and the egomaniac that I continue to be, and in fact, as I mature in my relationship with Christ, my understanding of my own depravity gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I often scratch my head and go, oh my goodness, it's actually worse than I thought. It's actually worse than I thought. It's not just my external actions, but actually internally is even wicked and depraved. And in my understanding of who God is, that he demonstrated his love for me on the cross, he fully and finally satisfied his requirement of perfection in Christ, and I got the benefits, and I didn't do anything to deserve it. As my understanding of me goes down and down and down, and my understanding of his holiness gets greater and greater and greater, the only thing that can grow to make up the difference is the love of Christ demonstrated at the cross. And when I understand that, the more I understand that, the more I just want to sing to his name, the more I want to respond in my finances, the more I want to respond by loving other people because he first loved me. And if you don't have that kind of response in you, I just, 
you might take a long look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll end with this. I used to hunt a lot. Oh, I still hunt a lot, but I grew up hunting and grew up rabbit hunting with my dad. And so he, and some of you are like, you hunted rabbits? Yeah. And, you know, I know some of you love rabbits. We did too, just with gravy, okay? It was different. <laughs> kind of different. And so we go rabbit hunting, and uh, we had these dogs. My daddy bought us these dogs, these beagles, rabbit dogs. And uh, it was great. We got them at Christmas when we were little kids. And, you know, when you're a kid and there's a box and it's wiggling, you're like, this is going to be awesome. Right? You open it, it's a beagle puppy in the box. And so I named mine Daisy Duke because I had a crush on her, and I figured if the real Daisy Duke found out I had a little Daisy Duke, we would get married and stay together forever, and it'd be awesome, all right? But it didn't work out. It worked out better. But my little brother had one called the Incredible Hulk. So we had the Incredible Hulk and Daisy Duke. They were a rabbit dog. And so we would go hunting, and I was, I don't know, probably young, too young to be carrying around 12-gauge in the woods, but when you grow up in Dillon, you get there faster. And so there we are. We're walking through the woods, and our dogs are, you know, Rabbit dogs go under everything and over everything, and they're trying to kick rabbits up. And so we're going, and it's freezing cold, and we get to this creek. And it's only about, I don't know, three or four feet across. It seemed huge at the time, but I was fourth grade or something, okay? And so my dog, Daisy, she goes walking out onto the ice. And she's kind of stiffing around, and she's doing that kind of weird, you know, walking the ice deal. And then we hear crack, 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 and then boom, she go, it breaks, and she goes under. And I'm just standing there. When my dog, Daisy Duke, goes under the ice and just, she's caught in the flow. And I can see her. And I can see through the ice. And she is clawing with everything she is made of to try to get up through the ice. But here's the problem. It is impossible. It is impossible. And it was by her own will that she walked out on the ice and plopped down in the water. And now the reality of her situation is there is nothing that she can do. It doesn't matter how hard she claws or, and she can't bark. I mean, she is just hopeless and helpless in that moment. There is no hope for her. And then, whoop, there goes my dog. And that's why if you're a hunter, you get about 15 of them because they're, they're a little easier replaceable. But I know you don't love dogs. So in that moment, as a, however old I am, I am freaking out. Luckily, my dad is about 50 yards down on the same little creek. And he sees me freaking out and screaming and yelling and hollering. And then he looks and he sees my dog under the ice coming. And in his wisdom and in his grace and in his mercy, he takes the butt of his gun and he cracks through the ice. And when Daisy gets to him, he reaches his hand down into the freezing water, grabs her by the back of the neck and pulls her out and saves her life. And the dog lives. Yay. Now let me tell you this. Guess who, for the rest of her days, was Daisy Duke's favorite human on planet Earth. It was my daddy. It was my daddy. Before that day, she was, a, she was a horrible dog. She wouldn't listen. She wouldn't do what we said. But I'm telling you, from that moment, that dog would not leave, her, leave his side. He would do, she, the dog would do exactly what my dad said. In fact, on the way home that day, my dad put Daisy in the floorboard on the inside of the cab of the truck. And at that point in my life, I wasn't a Christian, but I was pretty sure that that was a sign of the end of the times and that Jesus was coming back because we had a dog on the inside of our truck. But from that moment on, that dog was loyal to one person, and it was my dad. Why? Because in the depths of her depravity, when she was helpless and hopeless, the master reached down by the back of her neck and saved her life. And there's only one way to respond to that, and that's worship. That's worship. Galatians says it this way in Galatians 4. Galatians says, but 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what worship is. And that's why worship matters. Because worship reveals what we believe about the gospel. God is not impressed with how loud you sing or how good you sing. But when we know, when we know that we were hopeless and helpless and that God Almighty, because He is love and He loves His children, wanted to dwell with His children, but that was impossible because of our rebellious sin nature. And He sent His Son to make a way that we could be rescued from the mire and the muck or the frozen water then we have one response, and that's to lift our hands and to lift our voices and to put Him first in our finances and to come to the altar and do all of those kinds of things that just scream out, Abba, Father. So we're going to do something radical this morning. We're going to end with two songs instead of one. And, yeah, that guy always loves it. <clears throat> and however you respond. The Bible talks about all kinds of different ways to respond. The word halal that makes up hallelujah means to jump around and turn in circles. Some of you do that. Don't elbow your neighbor, but you know. Some of, sometimes the Bible talks about kneeling down in reverent worship. Praise God, do that. The one thing I can't find is this response. It ain't in there. So at the end of every service, I always say, that we're going to respond to God for who He is and what He's done. We're going to respond by singing together. And you need to sing like God saved you. And we respond by coming to the altar. And some of you need to sprint to the altar and say, thank God, thank you God, in my deepest, darkest moments, you reached down and saved me. And then we respond every week by bringing our tithes and offerings. And you need to act like God is first if you say that He is first in your life. However you need to respond, that's what we're going to do. Please stand and let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that when we were under the ice, by our own willful rebellion, God, and clawing and scratching and begin to understand, uh uh-oh, thank you, God, that your eyes were on us, that you broke through that thing that separated you and us, that thing that separated us from life, and you broke through that sin and you rescued us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just stir in this place. God, that from the depths of our being, God, we would worship you. God, that we are not performing for you because you have performed on the cross. And so, God, we are just responding to that with one voice united under the headship of Christ, God. And that we would sing, worship, and pray, bring what is yours. God, may you be worshipped, may you be honored, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond.